introductory weeks and put together a review for us this morning of what we've covered so far in the Torah. So hopefully you got the handout there. It's uh, two pages. I didn't staple them together this time. Sorry for the confusion. I was going to put them in two separate piles, but then it was too much work, so I figured you'd just sort it out yourselves. So you should have a front and back and then a third page that's just the questions that are some of the review questions on the geography. Yeah. So we'll see if we have time to get to that third page this morning. We'll be focusing on the first two pages. So here we are doing our Old Testament survey, walking through the Old Testament scriptures. Now, we call it the Old Testament. The Jews just call it the Tanakh. And there I I put that word once again on your hand out at the top to remind you that in the Hebrew Bible that Jesus and his disciples used, they would refer to the Tanakh, although that word is not in the New Testament, but they did talk about the law and the prophets and the writings. And specifically, they would talk very often about the law and the prophets. You remember reading through the book of Acts or the, book of, the, the books of the Gospels and hearing about the law and the prophets. Well, that would be the Torah and the Nevi'im. Now, understood in that was that the writings were also, but they just shortened it to the law and the prophets and how they would talk about it. But then, in Jewish tradition, they would just shorten it even more to Tanakh, with the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And we are in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. But really, what we've learned is it's not the first five books, it's the first book, singular. That the Torah is one large book in five parts. And how many chapters are in the Pentateuch? Anybody remember from... Several weeks ago, I know, it's not easy. 187. So that first blank there on your sheet is 187 chapters. That's more than twice as many of the four Gospels combined. And so the Pentateuch is the longest book in the Bible. What's the second longest book in the Bible? Psalms, yep. Now interestingly, the book of Psalms is divided into five parts as well. And that may have been influenced by the Pentateuch. They might have said, well, the Pentateuch's in five parts, so let's make the book of Psalms in five parts as well. Don't know for sure, but it is an interesting correspondence between the two largest books. The one that starts off the law and one that starts off the writings. The book of Psalms is first in the writings in the Hebrew Bible. And what are some of the other names for the Torah, or what does the Torah translate to in English You're reading through, and it's not going to say Torah in your English translation. It's going to say the law. Yeah, basically Torah is translated as the law. But it also has that idea of instruction. And so it's not just law, but it's also like principles by which you're supposed to live your life. So it's it's law and instruction, those ideas kind of together overlapping. But we just use the word law. What are some other ways that the Pentateuch, I just gave it up, the Pentateuch, so we got the Torah, which is law, we've got the Pentateuch, are there any other words that we use to talk about this first very large book of the Bible? The book of 
Moses, right. So it's very often identified by its author as well. The book of the Law of Moses is what it's called in Joshua 8.31, the book of the Law of Moses. The book of the Law in Joshua 1.8, the book of Moses in Mark chapter 12, verse 26, or the Law of Moses, as it's talked about in Daniel 9.11 and Luke 2.22. So has a lot of different ways to refer to this foundational book of the entire Bible. And so with 187 chapters and being the first and the biggest part of the Bible, hopefully that gives you a better appreciation for just how important this book is. And that's reflected in a lot of ways. So the importance of this book is not only demonstrated in that it comes first and also in its size, but also in the amount of quotations that we have from the Torah in the New Testament that the Torah is quoted more than any other book of the Old Testament. Now, normally, when we break down quotations from the Old Testament and the New Testament, we'll break it down into you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But if you put those five together, and that is the most quoted book in the New Testament. Psalms would be second, I think, and Isaiah would be third. And so Isaiah is first among the prophets, and he's quoted the most among the prophets. Psalms is first among the writings, and that's quoted most. And the Torah is first among the, oh well, the Torah, <laughs> right? So it gets uh, quoted the most out of all three. Also, it is even reflected historically that the Torah is the most important part of the Hebrew Old Testament in that when you analyze the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, anybody remember what we call the translation of the Old Testament into Greek? It was done several hundred years before Christ in Alexandria. What, what's that called, that translation? Yes, very good. That's called the Septuagint, and that means the 70. And we believe there were 70 scholars that were involved with that translation. And when you analyze the Septuagint, you find that the most careful translation work was done in the Torah. I'm not that good at ancient Greek to be able to recognize that type of thing myself, but those who have analyzed it say, yep, they put a lot more effort into the translation of the Torah than the rest of the Old Testament. Now, you would normally think they'd put a lot of effort into every part of the translation, but there's this special reverence that the Jewish people had for the Torah. This is also reflected historically in the party of the Sadducees, the Sadducees, you find very often referenced in the Gospels, that they only believed in the first five books, uh, they, or the first book, if you, you know, want to think of it as a, a whole, that they only really held that the Torah was sacred scripture and the rest was just additional writings, kind of the way that we view the intertestamental books of the Maccabees and other things along those lines. So there were some parties in Judaism that just thought, well, the Torah, that's it. That's God's word. Everything else is just additional writings. So it gives you some idea of the importance of the Torah in the Jewish mindset from all these different perspectives that I'm throwing at you. And I do that because I want you to have a greater appreciation of the Torah. Very often, there's just a few parts of the Torah that we're interested in, usually Genesis 1 through 11, the Ten Commandments, and maybe a couple other parts scattered here and there. But we tend to ignore most of the Torah, and I think we do so to our own detriment, that there's foundational truths about God that we find in the Torah that are essential for a healthy church for a healthy understanding of theology and so much I think of our theology in 
contemporary evangelicalism is weak because we have neglected the study and the teaching and the reading of Torah. So hopefully we're remedying some of that here. Now, I wish I had the whole church in Sunday school and the whole church was getting this, but at least some of us as the the Sunday school here are getting this better appreciation of the Torah. So let me ask you this question. It's on your sheet. What is the Torah all about? What's the, the made idea, what's the theme of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy taken as a whole? You look at Genesis 1-1 through Deuteronomy chapter 34. I think I got that right, 34 chapters in Deuteronomy. And, and what's, the, what's that all about? What's the big idea there? Good. Yes, I think you're definitely hitting some of the main themes, getting towards the, the heart of the Torah. And so you, when you're thinking about what the Torah is all about, you can look at it kind of thematically, like you're doing, with God speaking and revealing his holiness. Or you can do it more like narratively. What's the story that you're covering from Genesis to Deuteronomy? And they're going to overlap. One is going to support the other. So with this idea of of God speaking, and we'll take that and we'll say, well, where did God speak to the people of Israel? Largely in the wilderness of Sinai. Remember that we slowed down at Mount Sinai and that there's this center section of the Torah where Israel is at Mount Sinai receiving the law and building the tabernacle and God's glory comes and dwells in the tabernacle and he he teaches them how to do the sacrifices and how to ordain the priests and all of his moral commandments, all the ceremonial law, the feasts and the festivals and, and all of that. And so the law is revealing God's holiness to a particular people, the people of Israel. Right, sorry, it's too easy of a question. Nobody wanted to answer. So the formation of Israel and them receiving the law at Mount Sinai, entering into this covenant with God, that's the narrative big idea, that the the people of Israel are formed as a nation. So you see that the Torah is actually kind of like an epic that tells about the formation of a nation, but not just any nation, a formation of God's nation, the God who created the heavens and the earth. He creates a nation and he enters into a covenant with that nation at Mount Sinai. And so that's the heart of the Torah. That's the the narrative flow. And everything works to create that story of how Israel came into being and came to have this special relationship with God. You see that? So hopefully as you're reading through all the different chapters in Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers, and now we'll be getting into Deuteronomy hopefully this next week and we read through it together and come back together next Sunday to talk about it. You keep that big picture in mind. And that's why we read the Bible as books and not just as verses or chapters. This was a great point that was made at the conference yesterday. So, Clarissa and the Marazes and Elise, who's downstairs teaching. Were any of you in the session on how not to read your Bible, or was that just Colby that went to that one? 
So Colby went to the session on how not to read your Bible. And one of the points that Colby related to me that he learned in that session was you read the Bible in books, not just in verses. You don't just pick out a verse and read it out of its context. But God gave us the Bible in books, and so the the revelation of God, the communication of God, can really only be understood as you understand the books and how those books tie together to reveal God's truth and God's message. So we're getting that book-level study in the Old Testament survey that we so often don't get in the pulpit, as in the pulpit we're really slowing down and taking it piece by piece, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. But it's so good to balance that detailed study of God's Word with a whole big picture study of God's Word. And that's why I get so excited about a study like this with Old Testament surveying. That's why I'm encouraging you so much to be reading the books. And I'm encouraging you to read them differently than you normally do your Bible reading. Normally, in your Bible reading, you're you're reading just a small section and you're, you're meditating on it, you're thinking about it, you might be memorizing it if you're in Awana or if you're doing your own scripture memory. And that's all good. I want you to keep doing that. But... For, for this series that we're doing, I want you to try something different and read quickly. Read through whole books and just catch the story and let all the parts work together to create that general impression that the book is creating rather than focusing in on the details. So you kind of, kind of retrain yourself when you're doing this survey to read quickly, not, not slow down and think too much about the details, but allow the details to just form that big picture. All right? So... That's all talking about what the Torah is all about, that big picture level of of the whole book. And then the second question that I have on your sheet as we're getting back into the themes of the Torah and what we've learned so far about the, the law is why should we care about Israel? Okay, So if the big idea of the Torah is the formation of the nation of Israel and they're entering into a special relationship with God by covenant at Mount Sinai, Well, what does that have to do with us? Why should we care about God making a nation and entering into a covenant with them? Because we're not Israel. So what are your thoughts on why this is relevant, why this is important to 21st century Americans? Good, yes. And so if God kept his promises to Israel, then we can trust God to keep his promises to us in the new covenant. And so this is a a building of our knowledge of God. And to know God, therefore, is to love God. And to love God is to trust God. And that's what's really involved with this idea of covenant keeping, this keeping of promises. And that, of course, is, is a huge theme in the Torah, in the law, is that people don't keep their promises, people are unfaithful, but God does keep his promises, and God is faithful. And in a world where all of our interactions are with unfaithful people, it's kind of hard for us to trust anybody. It's kind of hard for us to think about a relationship with someone who always keeps his promises and never breaks faith. And so we need to be reading and studying the Torah and coming to have our faith in God strengthened. It's one thing to say you believe in God. It's another thing to actually do it. And what reading Torah will do for you is to to actually strengthen your faith so that you have a practical trust in the living God, and that will be what saves you. We're saved by faith, trusting in God and his faithfulness. Pretty awesome uh, how God brings that together. So we should care about Israel 
because it, it shows us God's faithfulness. Any other reasons why we should care about God's formation of the nation of Israel? Good, yes. So we go to the beginning of God's story because as God's story is going to continue to unfold, it's going to continue to center in the people of Israel. When you get to the Gospels, where are we? Israel. When you're learning about Jesus, who is he? He's an Israelite. When you're reading Paul's letters, well, there's another Israelite. And when you come to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, well, you've got the 144,000. You've got the city of Jerusalem being split by the earthquake. You've got the armies of the nations surrounding Israel. You've got Jesus coming back and putting his feet down on the Mount of Olives. It's all in Israel. And so all of God's plan centers in Israel. So learning about the formation of the nation of Israel and their special place in God's plan for the ages, we've got to get the beginning right. Otherwise, we won't understand the middle and the end. So very good. So one of the key ideas that goes along with trusting God and God's plan for Israel is the idea of covenant. And so we're introduced to the biblical covenants in the book of the law. And in the book of the law, we have which covenants? What are some of the covenants that we find here? Good. So God's covenant with Abraham. And which book of the Pentateuch is that in? In Genesis. Yep. And what other covenants do we find in the book of the law? The Mosaic Covenant. And where does that begin? Which part of the Pentateuch? Exodus. Yep. Are there any other covenants in the, uh, the Torah? Good. So there's the covenant with Noah, and that's also in the book of Genesis. And there's one more that we often overlook uh, because it's kind of a, a part of the Mosaic Covenant, but God also enters into a covenant with the Levites, a Levitical covenant, as we call it, where they get the special place in Israel of being the priestly uh, tribe. And so there's also the Levitical covenant. But normally we just focus on the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. Those are the major covenants that will play a role, a key role, in the rest of Scripture. And so the Abrahamic covenant is important to us. Why? Why is the Abrahamic covenant important to us non-Israelites? Think about the last part of the Abrahamic covenant. What's the last thing God says in Genesis 12 when he's first making those promises to Abraham? The blessing. I will bless you and through you I will bless all the nations of the earth. So here we are, all the nations of the earth gathered together in the new world, and God's blessing is coming to us, and it's coming to the Africans, and it's coming to the South Americans, and it's coming to the Australians, and the Asians, and the people of Russia, and the Europeans. All nations in the world are being blessed because of God's promises and his faithfulness to his promises to Abraham. So the Abrahamic covenant is important because it was the means by which God was going to bless all nations, which also goes back to the Noahic covenant where God had blessed Noah and his descendants and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Even though we're sinners, even though we deserve to die, God's plan is to bless us. Even though we deserve the curse, he still wants to bless and he reveals how he's going to bring that blessing starting with the Abrahamic covenant. And so then, with Israel being formed, and you've got the seed, 
The land, the seed, and the blessing are the key parts of the Abrahamic covenant. Everybody say land, seed, blessing. The land, the seed, and the blessing. And so the seed being created through Isaac, the child of laughter, the miracle baby, and then Isaac having passed that promise on to Jacob, who becomes Israel, who becomes the 12 tribes, and those 12 tribes multiply in the land of Egypt into several million people. And so the, the seed promise is being fulfilled in the book of Exodus. And then the land promise is fulfilled as the book of Numbers then leads into the initial conquest of the land that will then be completely carried out. Well, not completely, but will be carried out to a much fuller extent in the book of Joshua. And so what you're going to find out that when we get to the book of Joshua, Joshua is also just continuing the same story. It's going to start off with, and then this. And Joshua is just picking right up where Deuteronomy left off. And so the land, seed, and blessing are the keys to understanding the history of the Old Testament revealed in the Torah, but then also the prophets, the Nevi'im, who come after the Torah. And Joshua's book is, is part of those Nevi'im. It's the first book in the Nevi'im. Now, when we think of the prophets, we normally think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the, the big prophets, and then the minor prophets. But that those are included in the prophets, but in the Hebrew Bible, the prophets also include all the historical books that come after the Torah. So in the Hebrew Bible, the, the prophets start with Joshua, and then you've got Judges and Samuel and Kings, and, and all those historical books are also a part of the prophets. And then after those historical prophets, then you've got the writing prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah. So the big idea here is that we need to care about Israel because it's through Israel that we learn about the covenants. And the covenants teach us about the plan of God. It teaches us about the faithfulness of God, the character of God, and that this is important to us because it's through the covenants of God that we also enter into relationship in the new covenant. And so the new covenant, you get the idea, well, you know something about God from the old covenant, And that's foundational, but then it moves towards the new covenant, which is going to provide something better, which is going to move the plan of God forward in a new way. So we care about the old covenant because we're a part of the new covenant. And to really appreciate and understand the new covenant, you've got to appreciate and understand the old covenant and know why we needed the new covenant. Does that make sense? That's why we care about Torah. That's why we care about the covenants in the Torah. It does relate to us. It is not just about some ancient people, but it's still of utmost relevance to the world today. So we've already talked about the third question there on your introductory sheet on the themes of the Torah. What do we learn about God? God's story is ultimately about himself. That the book of Moses, while Moses is a key central character, it's not really about Moses because the story doesn't start with Moses. And Moses ends up dying, and the story continues on after the Torah without Moses. And God already predicts that Moses is not going to be the one to enter the land because of his failure. So Moses fails, Moses dies, but God is the epic hero of the Bible. And when Moses forgot that God was the epic hero, that's when Moses failed. And so as you're reading through the book of Moses, recognize the book of Moses is really the book of Yahweh. 
It's really the book about the God who keeps covenant with his people, the God who is powerful to deliver, the God who provides faithfully. So you learn about not only God's faithfulness, but also his power and his provision in the books of the Torah. And especially, I like what you point out, God's holiness. So there's some key things to, to be writing down about what we learn about God. Holiness, power, faithfulness. These are the key lessons in the Torah about God himself. You get to know someone by learning their story. And we get to know God by learning his story about the things that he has done in history. And the Torah is the foundation. Now, one of the other things we learn about God here that I want to point out before we move on is that it's a story about God dwelling with his people. And so God's nation of Israel is the first to experience God dwelling with them after the fall. You go back to Genesis chapter 3 and you've got Adam and Eve being cursed by God because of their rebellion, because of their disobedience. And Part of that is that they are cast out of the garden of God. And therefore, they, they no longer walk with God in the garden the way that they did before. They are removed from the presence of God because they are sinners. And sinners can't dwell with God. Sinners can't live with God. And so what is amazing about this story is that in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel show themselves to be sinners they break God's law within you know, 90 days of having received it. And they say, well, Moses is gone, and so let's make this golden calf, and we'll worship that way. And that was exactly contrary to what God had told them to do in the Ten Commandments. And so what's going to happen? Is God still going to be able to dwell with this people? Is God still going to be able to make this people who are sinful, who are disobedient, who deserve judgment and death, can he be in a peaceful relationship with them? And so that's where the tabernacle and the sacrifices come in. God does dwell with his people, even though they're sinners, because he has a way of atoning for sin. This atonement idea is hinted at in the book of Genesis when God kills the animals and clothes Adam and Eve with the skins of those animals to cover up their nakedness. And nakedness is what you are before God without any covering. And what you are before God without any covering is you are a sinner. You are a rebel. You are disobedient. You are worthy of death and destruction and wrath. And so you need a covering for your sin. And that idea of covering is, is probably a part of the word for atonement, that we translate atonement. There's a lot of discussion and debate as to exactly the precise meaning of kafar, atonement, in the Hebrew Bible. But I like that idea of covering that you see introduced there even early on in Genesis. But then God doing that for the people of Israel through the Day of Atonement, through the Passover sacrifices, through the guilt offerings and the sin offerings, that God sanctifies the people. He removes their guilt from them. And so that is a key idea that we learn about how does a holy God dwell with a sinful people? His tent is with them in their camp, and yet they're not destroyed. Okay, so that's, that's huge. That's key in understanding the Torah, the Pentateuch. So let's go ahead and break it down a little bit book by book as you have on your page there, your handout. And I'm going to help you fill in the blanks and you're going to participate. Finding the right word 
to go in the blank for the book of Genesis. So the book of Genesis is about God blank a covenant people. What do you think is the word that I have in mind for that blank? It was on your handout weeks ago. Creates is good. I had choose. So you can put God creates a covenant people in Genesis or God chooses a covenant people. The book of Exodus, God blank a covenant people. What does God do with the covenant people in the book of Exodus? Good. That's exactly the word I had. Redeem. God redeems a covenant people. And redeem is such a good word for the book of Exodus because it has both the positive and the negative connotation in there. See, when you think about the book of Exodus, you not only have the Exodus, but you also have the entrance. They're exiting from Egypt and slavery to Pharaoh, and they're entering into a relationship with God as their king and their Lord at Mount Sinai. So this is redemption because they're being redeemed from a terrible situation, a terrible taskmaster to the God who loves and provides for and who created them. So that's redemption. God redeems a covenant people in the book of Exodus. And then the book of Leviticus, God blank blank a covenant people. The, the, the first blank is making. So God making what? What does he make about his covenant people? God making holy. Good. So Leviticus is about holiness. There's that key concept. And Leviticus is the book on holiness. If you want to understand holiness, study Leviticus. It's the foundation point. The rest of the Bible is good on that subject too, but Leviticus is the starting point. So God making holy a covenant people. And the book is just this call to holiness. And in the book of Numbers, God is blank and providing for a covenant people. Blanking and providing. What's the, what's the, what goes in the blank there? Got an idea? Leading? That's a good one, but uh, it's not what I had in mind because it's too similar to providing and I'm, I'm looking for the other side of it. So think kind of the opposite of providing in the book of Numbers. He's testing. Yeah. So God is testing and providing for a covenant people. God testing people, of course, is also a concept that has its roots in the book of Genesis. You could think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as a test. Will they obey me? Will they not obey me? And you can think about Abraham sacrificing Isaac as a test. Will he obey me? Will he not obey me? Now he brings the whole people of Israel out into the wilderness to test them. Will they trust in me? Will they follow me? When I tell them that they can enter into the land and that I'll give them victory over the Canaanites... Will they believe that promise and enter into the land under my leadership? And sadly, the people of Israel fail the test in the wilderness. At least the first generation fails the test in the wilderness. So God testing and providing for a covenant people. That's a good summary of the book of Numbers. And then what we'll look at next week, the book of Deuteronomy, God's second law giving to prepare a blank people. Covenant. So I gave you the easy one there since we haven't covered it yet. (laughs) They all end with covenant people. God's second law giving to prepare a covenant people. So covenant people, covenant people, covenant people, covenant people, covenant people. The book of the law is about the covenant people. That's uh, what you see running through all five. And God choosing, redeeming, making holy, testing, providing, and giving the law a second time. Shows you how important the law is in all of this. 
So when you see it like that, it helps you get the big picture, right? Uh, that sometimes can be hard to see when you're just reading about Korah's rebellion and thinking about that. Uh, how does that fit into the whole big story of the covenant people here? And every other part. All right, so let's go ahead and review the outlines for the book, the, the individual parts of the one big book. And so the book of Genesis, I gave you the two-part outline, and it's a thematic outline, where you've got the primeval history in chapters 1 through 11, which are really covering four events. What are the four major events? Or this give me one, and then we can get several people involved here. What's one of the four major events in the first part of the book of Genesis? Creation. Good. So that's where it starts, with creation. And then what uh, important event do you have right after creation? The fall. Yep. And then about a thousand years later, you come to the flood. And then you've got, after the flood, one more major event, which is the Tower of Babel. Yep. And that's what you learn in Sunday school. You learn about creation, fall, flood, Babel. But that's just the first 11 chapters, right? So that's just setting up what we need to know about primeval history to get us to what's next. And chapters 12 through 50 covers another part of history that starts with a P. And what's that? Patriarchal. Yep. So you've got the primeval history and then the patriarchal history. We tend to focus just on the primeval history, but God actually puts the focus on the patriarchal history. It gets a lot more treatment, gets a lot more chapters. And so when you're studying the book of Genesis, don't just study primeval history, but also learn what God wants you to learn from the patriarchal history, which is really the story of four men. And who are those four men that are focused on in the patriarchal history? Abraham first, yep, first patriarch. Isaac, yep. Now, Joseph is not one of the three patriarchs, but he is focused on in the story in chapters 37 through 50. So he gets a lot more attention than Isaac does. As we said, Isaac is basically just the son of Abraham and the father of Jacob. and Very little otherwise is told about his story. He gets one or two chapters. But Joseph's story gets a lot of tension, a lot of focus. And that would raise the question as to, to why. Why is Joseph's story so important in the patriarchal history? And you can certainly learn some great lessons from Joseph and his story, his great example. But once you get a little bit further in the Bible, especially when you come to the life of Jesus, then you start to say, oh, now I know why God put so much focus on the story of Joseph. Even though Joseph is never specifically pointed out in the New Testament as a type of Christ, it's pretty obvious. Sold by his brothers, and yet through suffering, he becomes the one who is the savior of the people of Israel, being exalted to you know, the, the right hand of the throne. And so there's all these parallels between the life of Jesus and the life of Joseph. And this is one of the great things about the Bible is that when Moses was writing it, he didn't know that Melchizedek was going to be a type of Christ. And when Moses was writing, he didn't know that Joseph was going to be a type of Christ, but the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit had the whole Bible, the whole 66 books, planned out before the first letter was written. And so he was carrying along Moses, and he was carrying along Isaiah and all the Old Testament writers to write the things in the place where he wanted it so that it would all eventually reveal the fuller picture. 
And that is one of the marvelous aspects of the dual authorship of Scripture. That not only do we have the human author and the human intention that we look at when we look at the Bible, but we also look at the divine author and the divine intention. Why did God, the Holy Spirit, put this here? And that's the way that the New Testament writers read the Old Testament, and that's the way we should read all of the Bible, say, not just the human author's intention, but also look for the divine author's intention. And how do you know what the divine author's intention is? Well, from the rest of Scripture. It's when you see it in its greater context. Just like when you're reading a novel by just one author, there's going to be foreshadowing at the beginning of the book that you might not see, you might not understand, but the author knows why he put that foreshadowing in there. And it's only then as you read the rest of the book that's like, oh, now I see what he was doing with that early part of the story and why he put that in there. And so the divine author did that as well, and you can see it when you take a look at the scripture as a whole. So don't read into things that aren't there. You want to avoid that and say, well, the divine author intended this, and I have unique insight into seeing it. That's just reading into scripture things that aren't there. It's called eisegesis. But when you see that scripture itself through what comes later is revealing an antitype, the foreshadowing is now fulfilled in a greater way, then you can point that out as God's intention in the text. All right, so we've got the primeval history and the patriarchal history. So let's take a look at Exodus. And the Hebrew title of the book of Exodus is, these are the, yep, these are the names. That strikes us as odd because we don't really think of the names of the people who came into Egypt with Joseph and Jacob and his family as being all that important. It's just that's the way the book starts, so that's the way they use the title. And it really shows you that this is just a continuation of the book of Genesis, right? And what's the early date for the Exodus that we believe is the correct date for the Exodus from from Israel? Not when the book was written, but when the Exodus actually occurred. 1445. That's a key date in Bible history. There's a few key dates you want to try to remember. The Exodus is one of those, 1445. And then you want to remember the reign of David, 1000 BC. And then you want to remember the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria in 722 BC. And then you want to remember the fall of the southern kingdom to Babylon in 586 BC. So just a a few key dates you want to keep in mind so you've kind of got a broad general understanding of the timeline of the Old Testament. Exodus, David, deportation, you know, you get some of those big parts marked out and then you can fit the others in where they fit. And then when you hear an ancient date, you'll know, well, was that before David or after David or was that before the exile or after the return? So just a few dates that I'd like you to do your best to memorize. And the Exodus is one of those, 1445 B.C., and then the two-part outline for the book of Exodus, again, a thematic outline there where you've got the first R and the second R. The second R is revelation, which corresponds to their entrance into the covenant, but the first R is redemption. We've already talked about redemption, and so you've got redemption and revelation is the two-part outline, but I actually prefer Exodus and entrance. That's the easiest way for me to remember the two parts of the book, exiting from Egypt entering into the covenant, and chapter 15 is a good place to make that break, although there's several chapters there that are kind of transitional. So you can make the break between the first and the second part of the book of Exodus wherever you like there in ch- between chapters 13 to 18. Let's go on to the Leviticus then. The Hebrew title for the book of Leviticus is And He Called. 
And for the outline, you've got that there. No blanks to fill in. The way to God by sacrifice and the walk with God, sanctification. Those aren't perfect divisions. It's not like everything in the first 17 chapters is about sacrifice and everything in the last 11 chapters is about sanctification. But uh, you get the idea. And then the key theme I want you to remember for holiness, we already talked about it, for Leviticus is holiness. Holiness is the touchstone for the book of Leviticus. And that's why I put Leviticus 19.2 on your handout to get that in front of you, to remind you. That's a good verse to memorize. You shall be holy for the Lord your God, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 19.2. Now, holiness being the touchstone, being the key theme, is mentioned 150 times in how many chapters? Yeah, it's there on the outline, you know, so not, not too tricky to figure that one out. 150 times in 27 chapters. About how many times is that per chapter for you math majors? Take 27 and make it 25. And 25 goes into 150 six times. So about six times a chapter. And so you're getting a lot of emphasis on holiness, right? I put some of those stats in there just to really make clear why this is true, that holiness is the touchstone for the book. All right. So then, moving on to the book of Numbers, that's where God tests and provides for Israel in the wilderness. The book of Numbers recounts the failures of Israel, but also the faithfulness of Yahweh. So failure, faithfulness. Unfaithfulness, faithfulness. This is a very important contrasting theme developed throughout the Torah, but especially focused on in the book of Numbers. Even Moses and his family fail the tests in the wilderness. But God continues to bless the covenant people, even through a pagan prophet like Balaam. So the Jewish title for the book of Numbers is, everybody, in the wilderness. Or, and he spoke. Because, and he spoke, or something very much like that, is used 46 times in the book. So that blank there for Numbers is 46 and he spoke 46 times. So you see that key word in the book. So the wilderness is the place of testing, failure, and judgment. But through judgment, God is teaching lessons to the people of Israel and also to us. So that's why the outline is obedience, disobedience, and obedience, or order, disorder, and reordering there with the second generation being chapters 26 through 36, with the second census, the second group of numbers there. And then we didn't have time to look at all the verses last week. I thought maybe we'd have time today, so I I put the verses in there again about all the focus on the land in the book of Numbers. So if the book of Exodus was about the seed, the book of Numbers is about the land. And so you've got the seed, now they're in a covenant with God, They've learned about the tabernacle and the sacrifices, holiness in Leviticus. Now let's talk about the land. So you see how the land, the seed, and the blessing is throughout the books. And we haven't focused too much on the blessing yet, but as you'll see when we get to Deuteronomy and some of what we already skipped in Leviticus, the blessing continues to be a huge part of the story as well. So with the time we have left, let's take a quick review of the geography of the Old Testament What does the name Mesopotamia mean? Between the rivers. The land between the rivers. Meso in the midst. Potamia, the rivers. That's Mesopotamia. And what are the rivers? 
The Tigris and the Euphrates. Yep. And that's where Abram was from. Abram was from Mesopotamia, and a lot of the history of Israel is going to be interacting with Mesopotamia. So you've got Mesopotamia, the Holy Land, Egypt, because the land of promise, the Holy Land, is a land bridge between three continents. And you've got Africa, Asia, and Europe, the three continents there, mostly Africa and Asia, but also there in the, the trade routes to Europe as well. So God puts his people in the land of promise right in the middle of the action. It's the best place for a kingdom that's going to rule over all the other kingdoms. And it's also a good place for a kingdom that's going to be trampled by all the other kingdoms because everybody's going through there and everybody wants to control it. And so God puts them right there, right in the middle of the action. That's the land. The land of promise is a land bridge between three continents. It's about the size of what state? You remembered. Yeah, New Jersey. So... It's about the size of New Jersey. If you know your map of America, New Jersey is not one of the larger states. Right? It's a pretty small land area. It's got the Mediterranean Sea on one side, and it's got the Arabian Desert on the other side. And so there's this one bridge where you can travel through, where you're not in the water or in the desert, but you've actually got some great trade routes going north and south and going from Egypt to all the other places, Mesopotamia and the like. All right? So that helps you understand the land. And I included Exodus 3.8 on your handout. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good land, a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And so learning about how they conquer that land by God's power, that's where the story is going. already starts in Numbers. It's going to continue in Joshua. And the promised land depends upon what for agricultural production? Unlike Egypt and Mesopotamia that had the rivers, the promised land depends upon rain. They've got to have rain. That's why Baal is such a big deal to the Canaanites and everyone else who's living in the land. They worship the god of storms, the god of rain. Without rain, we die in the land. Our crops won't grow we don't have the river to worship. We've got the rain god to worship, the god of storms. So that helps you understand the Baal worship that is such a, a big part of the land and why Israel falls into that Baal worship because they think, well, you know, we need rain too, so we better pray to the rain god or we're doomed. They haven't learned to trust in the God who created the heavens and the earth, but they still worship idols. All right. I'm going to let you do the geography quiz on your own. If you picked up one of these geography quizzes, you can do that on your own. But in the few minutes that we have left, I want to do a little true and false with you. True or false? Covenant is one of the core concepts of the Old Testament. Raise your hand if you think true. Covenant is one of the core concepts of the Old Covenant. Uh, the Old Testament. Yes, that's true. Covenant is one of the core concepts of the Old Testament. Number two. True or false? Raise your hand if you think it's true. Without realizing it, we bring the cultural and historical framework of our own world to the text of the Old Testament. True or false? We bring the cultural and historical framework of our own world to the tent of the Old Testament. It's not saying should we, it says do we. Raise your hand if you think that's true. Yeah, unfortunately that's true. We do tend to read the Bible from our own 
cultural and historical framework. And that's why it's important to learn the cultural and historical framework of the Old Testament so you can understand it in its own context. That's why you read it, because God has included so much of the historical and cultural information that we need to understand it within the text itself. Why does God have all of these verses about the details of that world? So that we can understand that world and not read it through our own culture. Number three, true or false. One principle of biblical interpretation is that we must speak for the Bible. Uh, Do we need to speak for the Bible, true or false? It's kind of a vague question. Um, I think it's supposed to be false. Speaking for the Bible means like speaking in addition to what the Bible says. So we're not supposed to add to what the Bible says or speak for it. But, yeah, sorry about that one. When I read it, I was like, oh yeah, kind of ambiguous. Number four, if God is not understood to be the source of the Old Testament, it cannot serve as a self-revelation of God. Okay, there's a lot of knots in there. Let me read it again. If God is not understood to be the source of the Old Testament, then it cannot serve as a self-revelation of God. Is that true or false? That's true. Yeah, you've got to understand that God is the source if it's going to be a self-revelation. Number five, the application of a given Old Testament text should come from a collection of impressions gained from reading the text. True or false? The application of a given Old Testament text should come from a collection of impressions gained from reading the text. Sounds true to me. I mean, where else are you going to get the proper application aside from observations from reading the text, right? So we want text-based applications, and that's why we have to be good observers of what is in the text. All right, number six. In reading the Old Testament, we should be concerned only with its factual details. In reading the Old Testament, we should be concerned only with its factual details. True or false? Questions are making you think, aren't they? (laughs) So the key word there is only. And while we are concerned with the factual details, that's not the only thing we're concerned about with the text. We're also concerned about the thematic elements, the implications and the application of the text. So there's more than just the facts that we're looking for. We're looking for the, the big idea, the themes, the story, how it ties together. Number seven. Readers should try to identify the purpose of the author of the text. True or false? That's true, yeah. You should be looking for the purpose of the author. The human author and the divine author looking for the purpose. Number eight. There are 11 stages of God's presence communicated in the Bible. Let's skip that one because we're not using the text as much as I thought we might use the text and so I haven't made a big deal out of the stages of God's presence communicated in the Bible But the tabernacle is one of the key stages of God's presence with his people. And of course, Christ coming and dwelling with us, and then the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling with us are key aspects of God's presence with us. All right, last one. True or false? The Old Testament is primarily about God. Yep. True. Let's keep that in mind. The Old Testament is about God. That is true. All right, thank you for doing this review with me. And I hope that's helpful, and I've given you some time to catch up on your reading. We'll dig into Deuteronomy next week.